Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, I suspect we're about to have some inconvenient truths put to us today uh, in this discussion. Business to business marketing, it ain't sexy, but it is as troubled as its cousin in consumer marketing. If you're thinking and talking about short-term demand generation, performance marketing, or lower funnel metrics, it sounds similar in the consumer land as well, then hang around. This conversation is going to unveil some big insights into what the marketing profession needs to do in the next couple of years. Welcome today to Jan Schwartz. He's the global director of the B2B Institute, which is a think tank funded by LinkedIn. Mr. Rock and Roll himself, Mark Ritson, and Fran Cassidy. Fran is an advisor with the Institute of Practitioners and Advertising in the UK, the IPA, and the principal of Cassidy Media Partnership. She has done some global work on perceptions and marketing amongst the C-suite. Welcome to you all. Business to business marketing. Uh, Jan, let's hear from you about the big picture that's going on, the big challenges that are facing business to business marketing. Not dissimilar to the challenges that consumer marketers have, but it's slightly different. And let's get the global view first, and we're going to drill into some big, hairy issues. Yeah, I think, you know, it's you're not the only ones who are not covering B2B marketing enough, but I think it's a, it's an incredibly underrated, incredibly important part of our industry. But part of it is the fault of the B2B uh, marketers themselves. They are not taking themselves seriously enough and reclaiming their seat at the boardroom table. The big challenge, though, for B2B marketers is they are very, very focused on demand generation, performance marketing. What do business-to-business marketers, Jan, need to be doing now? What's, what's the big things that they've got to be thinking about? I think there is a couple of areas that really need to be greatly improved in B2B marketing. The first one is brand is what truly drives growth. The second one is emotions are not excluded in B2B. They're very much at the forefront of everything, and we have to start recognizing that fact. And the third one is the way to the boardroom table, the way to reclaiming your seat to the, at the boardroom table is through the office of the CFO. You have to make her or him understand how you're adding value as a B2B marketer. Those things are all key. But they are all fundamentally challenging how business-to-business marketing operates today, though. You talk about those three, those three big themes. That's, that's a big turnaround if there's, if there's going to be some change. Yes. And why do we need to see the change? It's time to stop rearranging the deck chairs. You have to really turn the ship around and focus on long-term growth and the drivers of long-term growth, which are brand which are emotion, which are aligning with finance. What's happening at the moment is everyone is so short-term focused in B2B marketing that they just can't even take the time to think long-term anymore. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You become pushed down into very tactical um, areas and you get measured that way. And that's no way to live if you want to reclaim your seat at the marketing table. So how did we get to that point? Why are we so uh, focused on the short-term in B2B When did it really start to to, to bite? It's three things. It's too much technology. Everyone's very focused on technology. It's pressure from sales. Everyone wants to make the sales team happy. 
And it's a measurement trap that we've set for ourselves where we measure everything in a very short-term way and in a very bottom-of-the-funnel way because that's the easiest way to measure, but it's not the right way to measure. Do you get any pushback from business-to-business marketers on this whole concept that you need to recalibrate the performance side with brand? I think there's been a real change where people now realize how important it is, but they still lack the tools of how to do it which is why we founded the B2B Institute, which is why we're launching it in Australia this week, because we all need the intellectual underpinnings to fight that good fight and have the right arguments. These these arguments, Mark Ritson, are what you've been pushing around for three or four years. Does it sound similar to consumer? What is different to business-to-business marketing and consumer marketers in, in how they go to market? Yeah, I mean, the pattern is the same, what Jan just describes. We've known each other quite a long time. So we've we've seen this going on in B2B is very similar. The short-termism, the focus on a, immediate response and the neglect of brand and long-term strategy. For me, the twist which makes it very interesting is that if you think about the B, classic B2C world, then it's kind of been... The bottom of the funnel is where the technology and the digital media has really kicked in and done a beautiful job. And the top of funnel was kind of more, not always, but more the traditional Provence with outdoor and TV, etc. That's not always true, but that's kind of a pattern that played out. If you look at B2B, for me, the classic difference is that the bottom of the funnel is sales, period. And every B2B company I've ever worked in, There's no point marketers getting involved down there because that is the territory of sales. And so the interesting territory for marketers in B2B companies has always been top of funnel and then handing that lead uh, contact approach down to the sales force to execute accordingly. And my excitement and interest in LinkedIn has always been that I believe LinkedIn is a top of funnel B2B jewel in the sense that you know, you think about B2B, Paul, you know, what else would you use for top of funnel in a B2B world? And the answer is golf tournaments and CNN advertising, right? It's crap. And so the ability for LinkedIn, which they can do to target particular decision makers in particular industries with a whole host of different tactics, for me, makes it a very interesting play top of funnel. But, but, but LinkedIn hasn't always been like that. LinkedIn has sold itself on a performance marketing um, sort of strategy to the market themselves. So, so Jan, what, what's going on? Is LinkedIn walking the talk here or are you, uh, is it learning itself? I think we're all learning. I think my, my domain, the B2B Institute, which is funded by LinkedIn, is all about educating the industry as a whole for the long term. So that includes ourse- us ourselves as well. But really... I think it's incredibly important to strike a balance. It's, there's nothing wrong with performance marketing. There's nothing wrong with ABM and all the new buzzwords. But people need to put them into perspective and they need to understand that this is just a tactic, one of many tactics. And having a lot of tactics doesn't replace your need for having a strategy. As Mark Ritson has taught me in his mini MBA course, which I took, he taught me strategies what not to do, right? Like that's that's what I think B2B marketers often fail to understand because they're in this sort of frantic race to try and make the sales team happy, make uh, get get their performance goals done. But 
you don't win the respect of the C-suite and the boardroom by being very good at tactics. You have to have a long-term vision. You have to build a brand. Well, I want to go to all of you on, all of you on this one, but there does seem to be a polarization in the marketing food chain, if you like, where you have sort of the brand-orientated people at one side and the performance and, and marketing people on the other, and there is no crossover. There's a po- no one sort of buys either line. The performance people don't even understand what brand is about, and the brand people are so obsessed by brand that they dis performance. Are we seeing any change in that understanding from both sides, or is it still bipolar? It depends, right? But I would say to you that that's not always necessarily a bad state of affairs. You get a lot of pushback from more senior marketers who say, well, in my day, you could do long and short at the same time with the same kind of creative and the same campaigns. But the reality is the shortness of and the, the potential of, of some of the new options we now have make the short of it you know, much more exciting and achievable. And performance marketing is, you know, is a function of that. So I think it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as they communicate with each other that you've got a longer-term branding uh, set of objectives each year and a much shorter set, perhaps, of more numerous activation objectives. And when we talk about two-speed brand planning, where the two speeds are the fact that one is a much longer-term brand-building mission and the other is a much more multiple short-term activation mission. And the twist that I'm you know, increasingly obsessed with is that I genuinely believe that the long-term mission is non-targeted and, and you know, uses Sharp's, Ehrenberg Bass, you know, sophisticated mass marketing approach. It's everyone in the market. Whereas at the bottom of the funnel for activation, I think that's nonsense. I think you would always go after target segments to activate. So I think there is enough difference now in those two things that I almost want them to be two subsets ruled by a decent CMO. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing as long as they communicate. Jan, Mark talked about sort of he's sort of having a little bit of a crack there at targeting. You've got some views on personalization and hyper targeting too. And some criticism around it. You're not convinced per se that it's 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 universal truth. No, my favorite phrase about this is just because you can doesn't mean you should, which sounds silly and obvious, but you would be surprised how many B2B marketers fall into this trap, right? And the reality is most of your customers or prospective customers are not going to always be in market for something. Most of them are going to be out of market any given time. And so unless you recognize that and you target those people very broadly with emotional advertising, you're just leaving a huge amount of value on the table. You want to have a very, very precise strategy that's very simple. And then you want to be very generous and very broad in the way you apply it. I think that's the circle you have to square. Jan, you also talked about the alignment um, needing a closer alliance with 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 marketing and finance. And, and Fran, this is where uh, you've got some fantastic and really, really deeply insightful observations you've done out of London. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you're seeing around marketing and how it tackles the CFO finance team and what it's doing. There's some trouble there. Yes, absolutely. Um, So the IPA and the FT, the Financial Times last year, um, did a study that I was involved with uh, that's called the Board Brand Rift. And what we were trying to do was see what the perception was of business leaders across the world um, of how a strong brand can uh, is associated, if you like, with uh, financial and commercial objectives. 
So how much do they think that a strong brand contributes directly to a financial objective? And the results were pretty Well, they're not pretty. Dreadful. That was the problem. Right? Pretty dreadful. Yeah. Just to give you an example, um, only 15% of non-marketers, of, and, and the, most of the sample were non-marketers, said that a strong brand was really important to future cash flow. And only 11% of them said it was re- that strong brand was really important for margin improvement. And, you know, that is the basic premise of why you build a brand. Mm. That's, the, that's the, the, the whole purpose of doing it. So I think there's some real uh, gaps that have occurred over the last however many years, 10, 15 years, about, uh, about what a brand is. And I worry, really, that the business community as a whole has forgotten what brands are for. And that's your, that is one of your, your, your key points, is that you think the current marketing generation, under their watch, that marketing has lost that connection between brands and business value creation. Well, I think it, it, it's the business community generally, really. And I think the, the, the whole move towards short-termism, I think that hasn't helped. But I do think, on a positive side, however, I do think that the, uh, the relationship between marketing and finance can now get back on the same page. They're pretty damning figures, Mark Ritson. I saw the data when it came out, and unfortunately it wasn't, it was quite surprising because it was even worse than I thought, and I'm a real cynical bastard, you know, and I, I, I was stunned by it. But I, I think, uh, personally, I think it, we have to blame marketers. There's this tendency in marketing, we paint this picture of, ooh, the evil CFOs, and ooh, they don't understand, and ooh, they're trying to make a short term. And it's all nonsense. I mean, I, you know, in, in my life, I get to hang out occasionally with CFOs, and I, I don't think they have anything to be responsible for here. We have fluffy marketers that don't understand marketing properly, never mind finance. They don't know anything about gross margin. They don't, they, they don't know how their business actually operates, and they can't link what they're doing to that value it's no surprise that 10 or 15 years later in this soft and fluffy and really rather embarrassing discipline, the boardroom is now pretty much getting the results that Fran is showing us. So, yeah, no, I think it's entirely, unfortunately, something we should have seen coming. Yeah, and it's one of your sort of observations too is that marketing and the CMO is essentially the chief promotions officer, if you like, and those other three Ps in the four Ps mix, which is, you know, product, place, price – that's sort of that's sort of gone to other parts of the organization. Yeah, it's it's a very worrying state of affairs because we had four P's: pr- product, price, place, and promotion. And I would argue product and price are far more important than the other two. And yet we're now left with one P. And even within that P, which is promotion, marketing effectiveness has actually gone down. So you would imagine that because we have one thing to focus on, we do a really good job there better than in the past. The opposite is true. But I would have to agree, unfortunately, with uh, uh, Professor Ritson here, is marketers fancy themselves as amazing communicators and compelling storytellers. Well, go tell the damn story to the CFO. Make sure she understands and you use the language that she actually cares about because that's communications 101. It's not about what you want to say. It's what the other side is going to hear. So I can see that from a uh, from a consumer marketing perspective, but in B2B where you, uh, you do have those real-time business conversion metrics that they're absolutely obsessed about, the, C, the finance team wouldn't have such a drama with those sort of numbers because it's showing some sort of 
activity. On, right, on so. sales, not marketing. Yeah, no, that's, that's, the that's precisely the problem is that you are educating your audience to evaluate your own performance based on short-term metrics. And so you've set a trap for yourself because not only what, what, what gets measured gets managed, as Peter Drucker famously said, it's actually you become what you measure, right? Like you, you, get, you get more and more into this sort of uh, loop of because we get evaluated based on short-term KPIs, we're going to have to double down on the short-term KPIs, which means we're going to get evaluated even more about those metrics. And before you know it, you're a super tactical person that's not considered to have any strategic influence over the future of the business, as opposed to a brand builder, which is incredibly important. And one very simple example that you can communicate to a CFO that she should take you more seriously is to say, you spend billions of dollars acquiring a company. You do M&A transactions all the time at big company. And then the markets ask you, why did you do this? And then you say, well, this company has a great product and they have a great brand. That's why we pay the premium for it. So you acknowledge it at the top end of the value chain. But then when poor old uh, marketing person comes to you and says, I need money for brand, you say, absolutely not, unless you can prove it. Right. So once you point that out that inconsistency it's it's pretty obvious that's a there's a language issue here there's a framing issue here and it's a perfect segue into into Fran because you do have some hope on the horizon there's a light at the end of the tunnel Fran and that you think that the finance people have actually recast themselves and, and reinvented themselves to to something different which gives marketing a, a better entree into changing the dynamics there I do think the finance function has changed if you think about what they were doing 10 years ago, it was very much uh, focused on the past. Um, you could say they were, you know, spreadsheet jockeys just looking at, uh, at, at, at past performance. But all of that sort of, that, that side of their business is now automated. Their job is now looking at future revenue. It's looking at future revenue streams and future value. And that is what marketing should be about. So they really should be on the same page because they're both about business value creation. But we have a language problem at the moment. So I think the continual use of marketing metrics and marketing jargon by the marketing team doesn't do them any favours. And it, it doesn't make them look more important. It, it just makes them irrelevant because... It means that the peers cannot um, assess whether they're contributing to what really matters because they don't understand uh, what, what they're talking about. So in my view, you know, we should be not saying things like we're having three campaigns this year. You know, why couldn't we say something like, you know, our strategic program has three phases? We need to convert all of our marketing uh, phrases into... Uh, commercial benefit. If you look at how 90, 95% of these marketing departments get their budgets from the finance people initially in all firms, B2B and B2C, it's kind of the finance group saying, here you go, here's your scraps from the table. We know you can't do, you, you can't come up with a zero-based budget. You can't give us what you need to invest in the business. It's beyond you. So here's what we'll give you because you're a cost. Go away. And, and from that point, brochures and advertising are produced. So I think that budgeting moment is super important because it's only in the proper companies, the properly managed companies, that you see 
some form of strategic budget where there's not necessarily the budget is given by the way, but there's a proposal that we need to invest X to achieve Y and then a debate ensues between finance and marketing. You see that, you know, two times out of a hundred and the rest of it is just let's give the colouring in department some pens, you know, because that's what they need. Yeah, certainly in some of the, the, the successful companies, the marketing department doesn't just communicate with the finance team by sending them an email with their report for the month. You know, they invite them in to the process. They invite them in to how they came to that budget. Very often, as a result of that, that strength in the relationship means that the marketing department can actually get more money because the finance and finance team understand where the request has come from and what it will do for the company. So are you seeing any change, say, uh, in the UK market, Fran, around this from the marketing teams stepping up to this challenge, uh, stepping up to what needs to happen next, or what's the lay of the land? So I think the agenda has changed, and I think people, are organisations and companies are looking to the best solutions and that comes in two or three ways. Um, some organisations are creating effectiveness units whose job is to pull all the data together, work across the, uh, across the organisation and pull the, the decision-making solutions together. You've got other companies who have started to build a capability within their organisations. And one of the examples of that uh, currently is Diageo that have pr produced a, a magnificent system called Catalyst, um, which has transformed their capability in market effectiveness globally. For the punters, what does that look like? Catalyst is a, a software tool that Diageo built over about 18 months and they put into this, uh, into this platform the, the performance, the plans, uh, the costs of their marketing for every single brand across every single market. Um, and it was a combination of marketing and finance that did this. They had external help as well, Boston Consulting Group, but this platform is now available across all of their marketers across the world. The benefit is that it helps them make objective decisions about where they're putting their AMP money, and they have had fantastic results. It's kind of, Diageo have always had that reputation all the way back through that they, they got their stuff together. But they're kind of doing what media agencies should have done and just couldn't do because they weren't very good. Right. That's true. <laughs> just what Fran just described yeah. is, you know, and then she said with the help of a consulting firm, which, you know, it, it is one of the great ironies or tragedies of the last 15 years that the era in which media became the most important, most complex, most risky, you know, thing in marketing, the media agencies just made it worse. But, you know, everyone's always beating up on the media agencies and in their defense... I think procurement departments at companies have quite a bit of guilt here that they should fess up to because people tend to confuse effectiveness with efficiency and they tend to conflate those two concepts in a way that is extremely unhelpful to the industry as a whole. You can be extremely efficient being useless as a marketing organization. You can be incredibly effective as a marketing organization without being very efficient effectiveness should come first efficiency is a nice thing and you should continuously strive for it 
But efficiency for the sake of efficiency is a terrible, terrible way to live. I hate to say this, but Mike Richards is smiling like a Cheshire cat. He's going to get a, He's got to come back. No, no, he's right. I mean, Jan's making a good point. I don't know whether it gets the media agencies off the hook, but it is a key, a key point that our clients around the world have all focused much harder on efficiency because it's easier and quicker. And the most efficient way to spend your marketing budget is to spend zero in year plus one um, in terms of the return. ROI is a stupid variable, you know, and, and it, it hurts clients when you say that to them, but it takes them to the wrong place because the period through which you're calculating that R is almost invariably too short. And so what you're doing is essentially optimizing and making more efficient something which will later on come back to hurt you. You know, you always remember that about ROI. The best ROI you can ever get is just to not invest a dollar next year and ride off the fumes of this year. And, you know, that's great for maybe even three, four months. And then everything goes horribly wrong. So that's where we get dragged to if we're not careful. So he's, Jan's right. I mean, we need that effectiveness Efficiency is not a bad thing. ROI is not a bad thing, but it's got to be within the context of uh, overall effectiveness. I think the other thing in this discussion is that clients are focusing a lot more than they used to on the pipes and not the message. Really, you know, media channel targeting comes really low down the list. It's about what you're saying to your audience. It's, it's, it's how you're saying it that has a lot more power. But this is the emotional stuff you talk about, Jan, too, which is a little bit a little bit testy for corporates to get too emotional, though. It's a bit yeah. it's a bit hard that whole thing. Yeah, but at the same time, you, we're all still dealing mostly with humans, not robots. The, the the humans are still making the decisions, and we have a an interesting tendency to post hoc rationalize our very emotional decisions because when something goes wrong, you don't want to be the person going to your boss saying. I tried to do some magical, wonderful thing and it failed. You want to be able to say, oh, I checked all the boxes. We did a thorough analysis. We had hundreds of spreadsheets and that's how we made this decision. But the reality is people don't make decisions that way. They make decisions based on instinct and gut feelings and based on their subconscious. And unless we acknowledge that, we miss out on you know 80% of our ability to persuade and influence. And, and let's remember that LinkedIn... And the B2B Institute that Jan runs have checked all this out. So they got the great field in Burnett in just to look at business to business to check that all of this is true. And it is true. It's slightly different. But the ratio is what? The ideal ratio is 55, 45 or something, is it? It's 55, 45, but it depends. The, yeah. the, the impact of emotion is just as powerful. What you get from ESOV uh, incrementals are almost the same. And 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 the point is that that's important because, you know, there is a big difference between B2B and B2C, a couple of big differences. And the big one revolves around the sales force, you know, and the nature of the buying committee. But we tend to overstate it too much. And then in reality, the decision-making process, the role, for example, of salience is actually just as important as is emotion, as Jan says. We've, we've created this sort of overly formal B2B discipline that in reality has a few tweaks here and there, but we could learn far more from B2C than we might expect. This is actually a huge opportunity, Mark, because you don't have to be that good at creative and emotional messaging in B2B to win. It's the old joke of you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to outrun the other guy that the bear is chasing, right? And so 
a little bit of improvement on the creative side is going to really pay big, big dividends. I mean, I, I would go into starting a creative B2B agency if I wasn't doing this because I think there's just so much opportunity on the table. Fran talked about changing the language, also changing to meaningful metrics. So what do new metrics look like that start to help facilitate or become a catalyst for the sorts of change that you're looking for in the marketing community, Jan? I would say share of voice is a really powerful uh, concept. You have to outspend your competition whereby the share of voice you have in a marketplace is bigger than your current market share. And if you do that long enough, your market share will rise to the level of share of voice you're, you're spending at. And that's a very powerful, very simple concept that you can measure, not perfectly, but you can, if you have a long enough horizon, that's definitely a very impactful metric. You whiz around a lot of big companies, Mark. What what happens when you put this to them? They will say that makes sense, but we're not moving on at all. Why is this not more deployed? I think the main, and, and Jan's right, right? So this excess share of voice calculation is phenomenally interesting. And I'm not a big believer in science and laws in marketing. I think we oversell it a bit. We can be more rigorous, but this is one that actually does hold up incredibly well. But the, but come back to my earlier point about budgeting. Uh, you know, I've worked with some very fine B2B companies on a global level, but the minute your budget is handed down to you literally from on high, there's no conversation about share of voice, share of market ratios and what we need to spend. The conversation isn't isn't happening. You know, let, let's be honest about B2B companies, even very good ones, they're they're led by usually salespeople if not product people. And the idea of cutting any form of sales force would be almost unheard of, whereas the marketing budget can be sliced back without any apparent impact. Now, I worked for a company famously many years ago where they'd sell their budgets globally and then we'd had a task where we'd had to cut, I think it was 20% out of everything, including marketing spend. And the head of Asia Pacific, he was a mate of mine, said, oh, he said, you know, he got into work early because when he told everyone globally, your marketing plans are all going to be cut back by 20% and you've already got them in place. He was expecting, you know, the mother of all discussions with all kinds of people. Nobody even called up. They just tweaked their money backwards because it didn't fundamentally matter to them. And his comment to me was, it's all bullshit, isn't it? If you take 20% of someone's annual marketing budget away and they don't even kick up a fuss and they haven't changed their top line numbers that they were predicting... I think we know where we are. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. that's where we are. Yeah. Well, you, you talk about um, excess share of voice and it's a, we had uh, Volvo's GM uh, of marketing here on on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. She's back. very good, uh, yeah. What's really interesting is that you talk about trying to land it with the finance uh, and, and group. She had a budget, wasn't happy with the, the cap on it and said, I'm going to use ESOV, uh, excess share of voice, to my regional management in Singapore to convince them that I actually need bigger budgets. And they said, this is the sort of stuff, this is finance people in, in regional, multinational, a global car company had not even heard the concept, but when it was put to them, they went, we love it. But that's a very important story and it's, it's unusual but not unique. When you go to CFOs with a coherent, quantitative, uh, data-based argument, I, I don't think you, you don't necessarily always get what you want, but what I've seen in my travels is, the response is very positive, almost as if, thank God, we finally got someone that's making a coherent pitch to us. It's because we don't ask. It's not these horrible CFOs closing us down. I think that one of the changes that we're going to need to see in the B2B marketing community, as well as the marketing community generally, is that we have to move to an evidence-based mindset. 
you know, the data that we're now creating uh, in the, the marketing industry is should be better than ever before and is if it is uh, pulled together by people that understand what they're doing. But it, it doesn't need to be perfect. It just, you know, the marketers just have to demonstrate that they are looking for the evidence that their marketing is working. The thing I see more than anything else is you get a decent marketer, but they kind of hide their numbers because they're aware that there are assumptions there. And you say to them, no, the first thing you ever learned in management consulting was you declare your assumptions. You put them out on the table and go, so I've assumed this, this, and this. Obviously, if that changes or you want to have a go at those numbers, you can. You've got wiggle room. You've got wiggle room and you're saying to them, within the parameters, this is where I think it's going to land. What do you think of my assumptions? But that's a skill that marketers don't have because they fundamentally think. It's like speaking a, a foreign language really badly. You just don't have the confidence. This is great points. And, and how do we build this, this, this new capability uh, that marketers need? Jan, I'm sure you're going to say that's what the B2B Institute's about. Um, we're here. But what, what sort of capability is needed and how do we get there? Yes, you're correct. I mean, that's why we built the B2B Institute. But education in general is extremely important. Like to Mark's earlier point, as Mark as a recovering business school professor, the one thing I learned in business school was you learn just enough about all the different business functions to be dangerous enough so you can go into a room and a finance person is there and she starts talking and you're not intimidated because you roughly know what this is supposed to sound like and you have that confidence. And I think a lot of marketers, because nowadays it's so much about do you know all the tech solutions and your marketing stack and it's so complex that not enough people are educated to have a strategic purview and to be able to go toe-to-toe with someone in another department, which then leads to people be, becoming even more sort of inside baseball, as they say in the U.S., which means like you, you talk this language that no one else understands and you're constantly going on about wanting to impress your marketing peers, but you're too scared to have a conversation with someone who's not in marketing. And remember, we've got this generation of digital marketers who are wonderful and, and marvelous and now in their 30s, but, but have virtually no clue about marketing and are very much attached to the digital and communication side of it. And unless we get them out of that box to the rest of marketing and then to the rest of the business functions, as Jan says, it's probably going to get worse, not better. Well, I was going to ask, are you optimistic that the marketing community at large, the marketing profession, can do enough fast enough, quickly enough to uh, reverse the current trajectory of where it's going. No, definitely not. I mean, I think Fran's point that the finance people are more now forward focused, combined with the fact that marketers are plainly going backwards. I mean, in effectiveness terms, we are going backwards in terms of training. I mean, it's not just that about half of marketers have no training. It's that most of that half think that's a good idea, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one thing not to be trained. It's another to think that training would somehow make you less good at your job. I mean, this is moronic. Mark Richardson's not optimistic. Fran, are you? I think the opportunity is great enough for the really talented and clever marketers to get with the program. And there's no excuse for not doing it because you just have to do the maths. You know, financial literacy is not that hard. You know, just... Just go to your finance department and say, could you do a few presentations to my team 
And th this is what happens. This is what has happened in several companies that I have spoken to. They say, can you come and do a, uh, a presentation to my team and tell you what, we'll do one for you on marketing. Let's try and both understand where we're coming from. So there was another example where a CEO and a CFO decided to create an effectiveness programme and they pulled together teams from all over the, the, all over the world to uh, create a, a course which the CFO and their new head of effectiveness rolled out in hubs all across the world. Every single marketer had to, uh, had to attend this course and it was an approach to do marketing in a different way. So, you know, going back to your point about am I optimistic, I think there are very bright lights across the world that are doing it really, really well. Before we wrap up with Mark Ritson on his B2B Communications Effectivist Manifesto, which is glorious, I do want to get your view, Jan, on whether you're optimistic for those lights in the sky that Fran talks about. I am unequivocally hugely optimistic, precisely because some of the things that my two colleagues here just said, it's there's so much opportunity here. And the beauty of capitalism, despite all of its serious flaws, is that it finds a way to give opportunity to those people who figure stuff out before everyone else. And the, at the end of the day, marketing is an incredibly important business function in theory, and it's not treated as such by many companies, but that gives an enormous opportunity to the few companies who do take it seriously and invest in it. They're going to reap all the rewards. It's it's pretty simple. And so I wouldn't be sitting here talking about this stuff if I wasn't 100% convinced that the opportunity is huge. And also, I, I have spoken to some incredibly talented people that have really got it, started to change their organisations, and the organisations have been successful. So I am optimistic. Taken. Uh, good, a good final point. Now, Mark Richardson, you've got a mega deck uh, that I, I have seen um, that has all sorts of insight around uh, what B2B communications and marketing effectiveness looks like. Give us, just give us a couple of the, the teasers. So on. what I've been doing for about a year now, I've looked at all the literature that's been produced by you know, all the great thinkers on marketing who've talked about effectiveness in one form or another, a bit of my own experiences, but mostly, frankly, other people's. And, and what I've tried to do is create a very simplistic and certainly up for discussion top 10 countdown of the most effective drive. So we all know what effectiveness is, but what, what makes work more or less effective in general terms. And there's some stuff there that's pretty obvious, you know, having clarity on strategy and having some basic research and so on features in the lower depths of it. But what's interesting is it isn't just 10 things, it's in rank order. You know, I've really squeezed it hard. And so looking at the, at the different uh, drivers to come up with what does make for the most effectiveness has been fascinating. And you get up to the top, and I don't want to spoil it completely, but... There's a couple that are probably unexpected. Creativity we've covered, and it's right up near the top because what the message itself, no surprise, is an enormous drive of creativity. Codification or the use of distinctive assets. Again, it sounds obvious, but it's a, a giant failure. Does the work look like the brand at all times or is it too subtle and clever? If they don't know it's you, then it's over, basically. 
So that's up there as well. But it's really hugely disappointing because the number one driver of effectiveness by a, a long, long mile is how big you already are. So there's a great moment of disappointment when you get to number one, particularly for Americans who get all this crap about, you know, David can beat Goliath, you know. Well, in the fairy tales and the Bible, yeah, sure he can. But in in effectiveness, that's not going to happen because the resources, existing memory structures, people on the ground, capabilities mean that the biggest single driver of effectiveness by a long way is that you're already a big boy or girl and you're essentially getting all the value from that that commercial injection. So, and, and people often ask me when I talk about this, so, yeah, but I'm only a small brand. What do I do? Because I, do? I can't follow a lot of these principles. I'm only a small brand. And I say to them, you stay small. That's what happens to you. You know, we can talk about Google, but it's it's the black swan. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it, most small brands just stay small or disappear. So it's terribly disappointing and depressing, but but absolutely empirically spot on that big boys and girls Get the most effective. Well, I know you've been you've been a little bit challenging on the uh, direct to consumer craze yeah, that's been going on in the totally. US. Now, I, I don't know if you've seen. It was interesting uh, last week. I think Casper did its IPO, uh, revealed it, and suddenly it's now. Oh my God, D 2 C, D T C brands are essentially what Mr. Ritson might have called out twelve months ago. The numbers aren't so flash, and valuations may come down for the sector entirely. What what do you make of that? Well, they should. I mean, the Americans again fell for it. Oakland. I mean, there's a whole. We don't see it much in Australia. There's a whole industry built around how D2C is different and how it's a new model of marketing. And you've got to politely just keep saying to them, look at two things. First of all, look at what P&G's brands did when they started. It looks awfully D2C to me in, in a traditional sort of 19th century form. And then look at what the likes of Casper do in order to actually scale and become nearly profitable and the answer is they open stores, sell in Target, do TV ads. So it's all nonsense, but it's born of this pornography of change that delights most marketers to the point where they don't really pay any attention to reality, you know? Well, I reckon that's a fabulously upbeat, insightful way to end this conversation. I think we need to loop around in, uh, in probably 12 months' time and get an update on whether we've actually got some progress and some capability build. But thank you all for joining. Great conversation and uh, safe travels. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.